People always say to me, you never use army sermon illustrations. You never tell neat stories. And the problem was I was converted after my time in combat units, and it's a new, I'm a new man, and it's a different life, and I just don't think about it. And I think of myself as a preacher of Jesus and his gospel. Uh, you know, normally, on a, we've got a great day ahead of us. We've got a lot of sessions. It's nine in the morning. We've got our Bibles open. It's great. Uh, and normally we're going to kind of work up thematically, not today. Open your Bibles to John 4. We're going to get right after it. And I have been given the theme, contentment found, Jesus saves and satisfies. Now that is a good theme. I'm going to look at John chapter 4, and in particular verses 10 to 15, if you'll open your Bibles there. Listen now to the word of the Lord. Verse 10 of John 4. Jesus answered her, that is the woman of Samaria, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir... Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw waters. The grass withers, the flowers fall, and the word of our Lord abides forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, what a remarkable thing that we open up the sacred book, the ancient writing of the apostles and the prophets, and what we find is a God who offers us life, a a Lord who went seeking and to save those who were lost, who had to go to Samaria, as the text says earlier, because there was a sinner who belonged to him, and he loved her, and he was determined to bring her the fullness of salvation. Lord, that is what you determined for us. And so we pray your blessing on your word today, on the preaching on the hearing of the word, that that of which we read would actually be experienced as we believe, as we drink from the Lord Jesus and his gospel. We pray in his name, amen. In 1509, Don Diego Columbus arrived on the island of Hispaniola to rule as a Spanish governor in the West Indies. Don Diego was the son of the great explorer, Christopher Columbus, And he came with a large assembly of people. He had quite the large retinue of cavaliers. And he even brought a troop of well-bred ladies to be wives to the leading colonists of New Spain. And one of the men who came with him was a man named Ponce de Leon, who was to be the governor of Puerto Rico. Now, Ponce was quite older. He had distinguished himself in war previously. In fact, he was very much esteemed because he had been a companion of the great Christopher Columbus himself. And though he was now old, he was animated with all the desires and ambitions of youth. And and he watched in frustration as the young courtiers came and and the, the lovely ladies went to them and they set off on their life of wealth and renown, and and his, he could see, would soon be coming to an end. One biographer says this of Ponce de Leon, the enjoyment of life had ever been an exquisite pleasure to him, and his desire to prolong his earthly existence in vigor was intense. Now, because of that desire, Ponce was inspired by legends that he began hearing from the native peoples about a fountain of youth. He, the legends told of crystal waters flowing from living springs. Those who bathed in them would be endowed with immortal youth and great beauty. And so he outfitted a small fleet and he began searching 
for the fountain of youth. At first, he went to the Bahama Islands. That's where the legends directed him. And he actually, there's a lot of Bahama Islands. And he went from island to island to island, bathing in every stream. This is, this is history. This is not fiction. This actually happened. And he's looking for the, the fabled stream where his youth would be invigorated. And it didn't happen. He couldn't find it. So he went northwest. And on Easter Sunday, he smelled flowers wafting over the waters, and he went in that direction, and he landed on what today is St. Augustine. He, he called it Florida because of the flowers that he smelled there. And he was sure that there he would find the fountain he'd been seeking among the magnolia-laden streams of that region. And he so longed to, to taste the promised fruit, the golden fruit. This is how the legend went, that there would be young maidens with golden fruits from which he would eat. And so he searched, and he searched, and he searched in vain. He never found the fountain of youth. He returned to Puerto Rico uh, not immortal personally in youth, but his reputation lives on, first for discovering Florida, but then for seeking a fountain of eternal life. Well, what he really needed was to open his Bible. <laughs> because in the pages of John 4, he would have learned that there is a fountain of vigor and satisfaction and eternal life. And it was located not in the Bahamas, not in Florida, although many of our retirees still think that's true. In fact, it was located in the region between Jerusalem and Galilee called Samaria and at outside of a little town called Sychar. That's what we find, according to Jesus, the source of living water was there, not in the well, of course, but rather in him who sat upon the well. For Jesus himself was and is and will ever be the fountain of eternal life. He says these great words, the beady mentioned them last night, making me nervous, by the way. Uh, fortunately, he stopped before going too far. <laughs> But they're great words worthy of repeating. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. John 4, verse 10. And then pointing to the well. Jesus added, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty. Our text says, will never be thirsty again. The Greek says, will never be thirsty forever. Forever will never be thirsty. And though lacking in scented flowers, golden apples, and lovely maidens, here was the fountain of youth, of, of vigor, of unending satisfaction. And Ponce de Leon may have drunk from it without commissioning a fleet of ships. We may benefit of it. We may take of it simply by believing in the Lord Jesus who still lives, who still offers that fountain to everyone who will come and drink. Now, Jesus is employing here a metaphor that is found in many places in the scripture, namely the metaphor between life and eternal life and water. And water, you may know, I, I, I realize you're going through a drought. The Beatty and I feel we've been something good for you all. Uh, Ryan, uh, was, was, what is this fog? Uh, we told him it was the, she the Shekinah glory. <laughs> Descending upon the place of the preaching. <laughs> but I don't need to tell you that water is necessary for life in this world. I, I fly a fair amount. I always enjoy flying over the Great Plains. In the East Coast where I live, we don't have too much of this. I live in a very green area, South Carolina. The upcountry, it's green. But I love flying over the Great Plains. I lived in Kansas as a boy. And you'll look down and it's brown, but you'll see little green circles. And you'll see green squares. Actually, they're big. They look little, but they're big. Or you'll see green slashes. And what are you looking down upon? You are seeing, by the evidence, you are seeing the presence of water. And where there is water... There is life, and so it is with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's using that, that metaphor, that reality, to make a point about spiritual life. As water gives life to our bodies, so does God 
give life and vigor and refreshment and satisfaction to our souls. Now in Jesus' day, this particular expression, living water, was used to refer to fresh running streams as opposed to stagnant water. But of course, and the woman, by the way, clearly takes it that way. She's thinking in terms of natural water sources. But of course, those familiar with the Bible will see this as referring to the abundance of life through the Holy Spirit that God promised through the coming Messiah. Jeremiah 2.13 is where God describes himself as the spring of living water. Psalm 36.9 says, For with you is the fountain of life. Isaiah 44.3 tells of the coming day of salvation. For I will pour water on the thirsty land, streams on dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring. And then we read last night and we heard that beautiful exposition of Revelation 21 going over to verse 5 of 22 that there's a river of the water of life flowing from the throne of God and from his son, the Savior Lamb, picking up on the great imagery of Ezekiel in Ezekiel 40 to 48, fulfilled in the coming of the Lord Jesus. Skip Ryan therefore describes living water as the soul-satisfying grace of God that only God can give to satisfy the soul. It is the transforming life and power that God alone gives in and through the gospel of his Son. It gives eternal life and satisfies us as nothing else can. Now in making this offer, Jesus summarizes the entire gospel in terms of two great things that the world needs to know. I always like it when there's only one or two or three things. When, when I was a boy, my dad tried to teach me golf. Uh, it was probably, this is the New Mexico, there's probably golfers here. My view is life is frustrating already enough without golf. <laughs> and my well-intentioned father, Ricky, keep your feet slightly apart, left arm straight, wrist limp. You know, I, I'm, two things, not 14. <laughs> Two things the world does not know and needs to know. By the way, the simplicity of the gospel. The gospel is not inherently complex. It is simple. It is straightforward. And first, Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God. And my friends, that is what we're to know. That God, the God, the creator, the Lord, the the Holy One, That what he has for the world is the gift of life. Maybe you're new to Christianity. Maybe someone brought you here. Maybe for whatever reason you've come here. And you're wondering, what is Christianity about? Did you know that God has a gift to give you and that gift is life? He says, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. Isaiah 55, 1. And we may bring our parched souls to him and be watered. And so first, we need to know that God has the gift of life to give to us. And secondly, Jesus said, if you knew who it is that is speaking to you. We need to know who Jesus is and what God gives to us through him. Jesus is the Savior sent by a loving Father, by grace, to bring eternal life, heavenly satisfaction to a dying world. And really, in those two statements, you have the whole gospel. By the way, I think this is one of the greatest evangelistic uh, scenes in the entire Bible. I wrote a book, Jesus the Evangelist, just looking at the various... Uh, times in the Gospel of John where Jesus is personally involved in evangelism. And, and this chapter really captivated me. There is Jesus going to a woman despised by the world, particularly by the religious people of her day. Even her own people didn't want to associate with her. And Jesus comes, and what does he have to say? What, what, what do people think Jesus is going to say if he runs across a moral outcast, a, a shame-filled woman like this? He says, if you knew who I am, and if you knew the gift that God wants to give you through me, you would ask and I would give it to you. There we have the glory of our gospel We need it. 
God's gift of salvation and eternal life, and we gain it from him, the Savior, Jesus Christ. And he promises, if you knew the gift of God, you see, he's speaking still. If you knew the gift of God, and who, he who's saying, give me a drink, Jesus was sitting at the well, he'd ask her to serve him. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Well, Jesus' offer produced a revealing response from the woman. Look at verse 11. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Now, one of the things you'll see in the Gospel of John is a very penetrating descriptions of unbelief. Uh, Jesus earlier in John chapter 3, he'd made the statement that the reason for, for unbelief is a love of sin. Light has shined in the world, but men love darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. And that is certainly true. And many people, they, they have these claims to sophisticated objections to Christianity when what they really have is a prior commitment to sin and its pleasures. And that's one of the biblical descriptions of unbelief. But here in this woman, we see another description, namely the spiritual inability that is caused by what theologians call original sin, the corrupting effects of Adam and Eve's fall, that you and I were born not spiritually able, but spiritually unable, and she's blinded by sin. And so she's unable to understand the message of Jesus. She's an earthly person. She's not able to think in spiritual terms. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man or woman is not able to receive the things of the Spirit. Not just that they won't, but not able to because they are spiritually discerned. Paul says in Ephesians 2.1 that we were dead in trespasses and sins. And so a spiritually dead person is not able to respond to an offer. And she's a perfect example of this. Is she can only think in earthly and worldly and physical terms of, of physical water and literal wells. And so her response to Jesus is almost comical. Uh, she did not see how he could offer what she understood as running water. She's thinking, he's talking salvation, she's thinking plumbing. <laughs> he had no pail, verse 11. You have nothing to draw water with. The well's deep, where will you get the living water? And she didn't see how Jesus could claim to be better than someone like Jacob, the patriarch Jacob had apparently dug this well and it was stagnant water. And so Jesus is gonna do what Jacob could not do. That's the way she's thinking. By the way, Jacob's well remains in Samaria today. Go home and Google the picture. There's a picture of it on it. If you Google it, it's fascinating. And uh, they think it's the right one. It probably is. Uh, some scholars think it was at that time the deepest well in all of Palestine. Even today, it's 100 feet deep. It must have been much deeper then. So how can this stranger, Jesus, with no apparent distinction or station, hope to do better than Jacob and his well? So she's thinking in terms of human reputations and power. And that is the way people view Jesus today. I wonder if you do. Well, Jesus, he's nice enough, but he's not someone to take seriously. Not really. I mean, he doesn't head a powerful organization. He doesn't command worldly resources. You see, we think that the people who matter are those who allocate riches and promotion, those who uh, allocate status, those who give valuable services and goods. And so Jesus, however morally uh, good he may seem, he just is not of much earthly good, people think. That's the way the woman of Samaria was thinking. Jesus doesn't bring advanced technology. He can't compare with people who matter. She thought, Jacob, now there's somebody who matters. We, we think it's other people rather than Jesus. But you see how wrong that thinking is. Jesus says, if you knew who's speaking to you. See, it's the person and the work of the Lord Jesus if you knew that he is the son of God and able and willing to give eternal life, how differently you would think. And Jesus may seem easy to dismiss, but according to the revelation of God's word, do you know where he is now? He is seated over all things in heaven and on earth with all things placed under his feet for the church. Even in the material realm, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is sovereign over the fall of the sparrow, even. 
There is nothing now that he's enthroned on heaven and earth. There was a time when he set aside his glory in that sense and he was born in a manger. He placed himself under the world, but having died and been raised, he is enthroned over the world. And so yes, even when we're thinking about secular matters, it is Jesus who ultimately is Lord for his people. And yet the secular matters are not primary. My kingdom is not of this world. It is of the spiritual realm. It is, he is the one who disposes eternal life. He is the one who rules over the destinies of the souls and men and women. Now let me say this. Does this not remind us how important it is since that is who Jesus is now? Since this, these are the, the, the matters in which he deals, how important it is for you and me to be telling our friends and neighbors and family members about Jesus Christ. Because I will tell you this, they don't know this. They don't know who he is and what he offers. When I was in South Florida, I pastored a, a physically large church, a really massive church, glass, and it kind of it was on a main intersection, kind of dominated our port portion of our county, dancing fountains in front. Uh, I didn't put them there, they were there. But, uh, and one time I was talking to my Jewish neighbor, he lived across the street from me, and I'd been there three years or so, and I sort of knew him, and we're standing in the street, and he says, aren't you like a preacher? <laughs> yeah. Don't you, like you pastor that big, yeah, I'm the pastor of that church. He pauses and says, were you ever going to talk to me about Jesus? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like Zacchaeus. You know, the whole thing about Zacchaeus was not that he was short. He was short, but that he was thinking about Jesus, but he wasn't telling people that he was thinking about Jesus. That's why he was in the sycamore tree. Yes, because he could see, but the sycamore tree gave him camouflage. And I really believe, it, we, we, we look upon the culture war today and we think we're surrounded by this culture war of people who are obsessed with doing in Christianity. Now there is a culture war, there's spiritual attack, but our neighbors are not our culture war enemies. They're our neighbors and how many of them go to bed at night wondering about Jesus Christ. And they're not gonna tell you, they're not gonna put a sign on at work saying, I am wondering if I can have life in Jesus. You know, my friend was watching heretical telemarketers receiving false gospels. That's what he was doing. He told me this while he lived across the street from the, one of the pastors of the largest churches in the area. I'd never talked to him about Jesus. Well, we, we all are struggling with that. But I think it helps us to realize that Jesus would have us tell them simply who he is and the gift that God would give them. We can tell them that. I would challenge you that each of us should have on our hearts and on, in our prayers at least one person that we we're asking God to enable us to tell them just this. I want to tell you who he is and what he gives. Living water, eternal life from God the Son. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And this is what we preach, my friends. This pulpit is here, not here to teach lifestyle trips, tips, it is not here to proclaim political strategies. And I can say that knowing I'm not embarrassing the pastor. I'd say it anyway on this issue. <laughs> this apparatus is here, this church is here to proclaim Jesus as Lord, as Savior, as the giver of life, the Son of God who brings salvation. We are to bear that message today. Well, with this in mind, Jesus replies to her, and he says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Every earthly source of life and satisfaction is going to fail to satisfy our souls. And we've been talking about that. Uh, we talked about it last night. We're going to talk about it again. This is a big issue. We need to get straight. She might get pipes leading from the well all the way to her house, but it would not satisfy her. She would need it over and over. She would thirst again. You know, thirst is one of the strongest cravings that we have. I'll, I'll tell you one army story. I was once leading a reconnaissance unit in the Mojave Desert on exercise. We had these very realistic exercises, and I was a reconnaissance commander, and I was a little aggressive because I was ambitious. And I pushed my men a little hard, and we got behind the enemy lines. We were so far out, and we ran out of water. It was 130 degrees. Now it was dry heat, like my oven. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I, 
We come, us East Coasters, we come out here and they go, you know, it's 115, but it's dry heat. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, and I have had my tongue swell. That was the occasion of it, by my own folly, because of lack of water. And one of my sergeants saved us by, he was actually, his tank had broken down and he heard me. I was calling for water and I could not be understood because my tongue was swollen. And he understood what it was about. He went and acquisitioned, he stole a water buffalo and dragged it out to us. But people, and of course the ancient people knew they had the experience of of the torment of thirst. Hunger is bad enough, but thirst will torment you. And this is a description, the strongest cravings are the souls of men and women thirsting for God. Nothing will satisfy, nothing will give the life for which we were made than God himself through Jesus Christ. Thou hast made us for thyself, Augustine said, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Now this was true for the Samaritan woman and it is true for you. You can have everything this life can offer. You can have riches. You can have rank. You can have place and power. You can have beauty. You can have admiration. You can have relationships. And yet here's the tragedy. Having them, you will be utterly unfulfilled. Isn't that the story of America in our generation? This gaudy affluence, ever-ready entertainment, unparalleled leisure, excitement. I remember at the very height of the recession a few years ago, my wife and I went downtown, the restaurants were filled. <laughs> downtown Greenville was overflowing with people. I'm going, this is, this is a depression in America today. The depression is not in what we have, but in who we are. And what is going on in our lives. And if there, if there is a generation, if there's a people today aching of thirst, it must be us. Let me quote Arthur Pink. He's really talking about the whole human condition. He says, whether he articulates it or not, the natural man the world over is crying, I thirst. Why this consuming desire to acquire wealth? Why this craving for the honors and plaudits of the world? Why this mad rush after pleasure, the turning from one form to another in a persistent and unwearied diligence? Why? Because of the aching void in the soul. Because there is something remaining in every natural person that is unsatisfied. This is true of the millionaire equally as much as the pauper. It is true of the globetrotter equally as much as the country rustic who's never been outside of his native county. Over all the cisterns of this world's providing is written in letters of ineffaceable truth, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. And Charles Spurgeon points out that thirst occurs when there is the absence of a necessity. We can have many things and they're good and we like them, but without the thing that is necessary, we will thirst. And so it is for the thirst of the soul. We have a deep knowledge of our need to be cleansed of our sins to be renewed by the Spirit, to have acceptance with God and belonging in his presence. I wonder if you thirst that way. Well, if you do, if you long for God, if what you're longing for is meaning in your life and and a sense of belonging in a real and true body of people, Jesus is addressing an invitation to you. A few years ago, I was flying back from Kenya. I'd been ministering there, and I was standing in customs at Heathrow Airport, speaking of discontentment, you know, standing in the custom line at Heathrow. And there's a very affluent English couple in front of me. They've been on some safari, some luxury, you know, shooting, uh, not Bambi, over there, they, they, it's the Lion King. And, then, uh, and they were just talking about the, the, the great, it was just, I was just listening to them, this, this great safari they were on. And... And then they were talking about coming back to their normal lives. And one of them, they were talking about the poverty of the Kenyan people and the political disempowerment. It's true, it's kind of heartbreaking to see the disempowerment in many respects. And then one of them said, what I can't understand though is that they seem so happy. And that's where I entered into the conversation. It was a really long customs line. And I said, you know, it's worthy reflecting on. Affluence, wealth, the ability to go fly and do spectacular things. And yet we look at poor people in other countries and they have what we don't have. 
They have a sense of happiness. Well, so it is. We can have everything, but there are things that are necessary, and without them, we will thirst. It is necessary, my friend, that you be forgiven of your sins. You see, apart from the final judgment, and that is a rather large matter, but you will live bearing the curse of guilt upon your soul, and you will know it. You will bear the shame. I'll never forget a woman came to me once, had been converted through a preaching. I was preaching somewhere in John's Gospel. It was later on. And it was interesting. I never had somebody put it quite this way. She says, what really got through to me is not only that he bore the guilt of my sin, but he bore my shame. And I've been ashamed my whole life because of my sin. And I need it to be taken away. We need the curse removed. And then we need life, real life. We need the Holy Spirit living within us and without it we will thirst. Remember Ponce de Leon? You know, the tragedy of his life is not really that he never found the fountain of youth. The tragedy is that if he had found it and if it had been real and if he had become young and beautiful, and if that could have been perpetuated for as long as he wanted to have been, it would have led him to despair. It would have led him to the exact opposite of satisfaction. Well, what are you seeking? Riches, pleasure, fame. You see, the the tragedy in America is not that we cannot attain the things that we want. By and large, you're able to get what we're seeking. The problem is that what we've been seeking when we find it lets us down and there's no satisfaction apart from Christ. Now that's especially true when it becomes sin in which we're we're pursuing, in which we're living. We then become, the Bible says, like broken cisterns, not even able to hold water. Well, Jesus says to all who thirst, let him come to me and drink. You see, he's offering, he is offering to meet your deepest needs. He is not offering to give you what you think you want. (laughs) But he's offering to give you the very life of God that will bring you satisfaction. Anyone who has been truly thirsty has nothing more pressing on their mind than their need to drink. And Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, this is John 7, 37, let him come to me and drink. J.C. Ryle points out that the saints of God in every age, this is what Christianity is about, this is what he's saying, this is the deal. In every age, you can find the people of God that they have by faith drunk from this fountain. And they have been relieved. They have all kinds of problems. But they have lost their guilt and emptiness. They had thirsted for deliverance and they received in Jesus a full supply of pardon, mercy, and grace. They believed the good news and acted upon it. And Jesus promises to all who thirst, let him freely take from me everything his soul wants. Mercy, grace, pardon, peace, strength. Jesus says, I am the fountain of life. Well, that was Jesus' message to the woman by the well. He told her that by drinking from all the worldly troughs, she would be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty forever. Then he says this, the water that I give will become in him a spring of water Welling up to eternal life. Let me say three things about this. First, there's a condition. There's a condition to what Jesus offers. He says, whoever drinks. He did not say, whoever fulfills a grand quest or performs at a morally high level or who engages religiously in in certain ways. He doesn't place a price tag on his living water. God's son simply says, whoever drinks. Now, of course, he's talking about simple faith. John 3.16 puts it differently. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but should have everlasting life. That's not only talking about the final judgment, but it's talking about right now. We pass from a life of death to real life. Leon Morris says, the gift of living water is not a reward for meritorious service. It is a gift that brings to anyone who receives it, no matter how insignificant or limited he or she may be, a totally new experience, a new 
empower a new life that is eternal. Now let me just point out in this respect that this woman's sins did not keep Jesus from offering her eternal life. Now it's gonna come up later. Jesus brings sin up before too long, but not before he offers salvation, but after and as part of his offer of salvation, if she believes he knows his death on the cross will cleanse her from all our sin. You know, I think evangelistically there's an insight there. We are not witnessing the gospel if we don't bring up sin and and judgment. We are saved from sin. We are saved from guilt. We are saved from judgment. But methodologically, we don't always have to start there. We can meet the broken where they are and bring mercy and talk about Jesus as the great healer. We can talk about the woman who's thirsty and say he has a gift of life. Yes, sin must be dealt with, but it is not a barrier because Jesus has removed the obstacle of sin. George Hutchinson wrote, Christ who makes offer of grace before we seek it, he will not refuse it to any, however great the sinner who ask of it. Former sins will not hinder Their acceptance, even to this wicked woman, he says, if you asked of me, I would give you the living waters. And so there's a condition, and it is simple faith, receiving God's gift. But then there's a consequence and how glorious it is. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. Jesus offers to satisfy our souls. Now that does not mean that our trials are all going to cease. He does not promise a carefree life. In fact, quite the contrary. Becoming a Christian is more likely to make your life difficultly. Prior to being a Christian, you were at war with God, but at peace with sin. And now you're at peace with God, and you're at war with sin. And sin is at war with you, and the world is at war with you. And the devil knows who you are, and he has minions. Absolutely, there is a target on your back, as it were. Becoming a Christian does not relieve temporal sufferings. It makes them more likely and more serious. I sometimes like to say to converts, I want to... Praise the Lord and congratulate you. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's wonderful. And when you die, you are going to heaven. That's the good news. But the bad news is you look pretty healthy. You're likely to live a long time. <laughs> and there's trials and there are pains. And, and, and you see, I, I, I love myself. I have a wonderful plan for my life. It's called happiness. God loves me more than I love me. And he has a better plan. It's called holiness. And all those trials and all the persecution, I'm going to talk later on today about weakness and contentment in it, they get, they're edited out of my plan. They're edited back in to his. And he's going to draw with my life a straight line with a crooked stick. And we'll talk later on about, uh, expound more of the reasons why that is so. But we are not saying that the circumstances of your life will therefore be all rosy. Changing the the metaphors, the biblical examples, Jesus will send you out upon the waves, on the water, and then he will bring the storm. But he will be on the mountain above them praying for you, and you will not fail. We are not saying that you you will have material riches, you will have great health, your teeth will straighten out. You know... My daughter was teasing me. She said, Trent said, you know, it's the beating our East Coast guy, so we, we tend to wear suits. And Ryan said, don't bring a suit. This is the West Coast. So my, my daughter said, Dad, you're going to wear skinny jeans. And my, <laughs> my son said, that would require an operation for that to happen. So, <laughs> you know, I, I, middle age will still have its effect on the Christian. That is not what we're talking about. But our souls, our souls will find satisfaction in him who is the life. Our souls will grow. Earthly things, yes, they will lose their appeal. And the more worldly and the more sinful they are, their luster will fade. Praise the Lord that he does that. And in the midst of it all, we will find permanent satisfaction in Christ for the thirst of our souls. There's a condition, faith, there's a consequence, life, and then there is a change that results. Verse 14, the water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This is talking about the new birth. 
This is talking about regeneration. It, it is to be born again, to be a new creature, to have a, a spiritual fountain welling up within you, the, the life of the Holy Spirit as God gives himself and he lives within you and he moves in your heart and now you say, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That is the glorious change that occurs in each of our lives. Now, faith is not just receiving. Faith is also yielding. When Jesus says, whoever asks of me, that asking involves a receiving of him, not only as Savior, but also as Lord. One of the most noxious doctrines going around today is that you may have justification without sanctification, that you may have Christ as Savior without Christ as Lord. There is one Jesus, there is one gospel. Be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. It is good news that I am forgiven. It is also good news that by God's grace, he is changing me and I must yield myself to Jesus. Do not say that you have received the gift of eternal life, that you have faith in Jesus without surrendering yourself unto him. I think this is wonderfully depicted by C.S. Lewis in his uh, children's novel, The Silver Chair. I hear they're making a movie of it now. It's going to be interesting to see how that works out. And if you know the Narnia Chronicles, and in The Silver Chair, the heroine is Jill. And she has seen a lion, and she's fled from the lion deep into the forest, and she becomes worn out. Soon she's so thirsty, she thinks she's about to die. And then just... At that moment, she hears the gurgling of a brook. And so she starts staggering in the direction. But then when she sees the water, there crouched before it is the lion from which she has been fleeing. And he says, if you are thirsty, come and drink. Well, she doesn't move. Are you not thirsty, the lion asks? I'm dying of thirst, Jill says. Then drink. May I, she says, could I? Would you mind going away while I do? <laughs> and the lion answers with a low growl and she realizes that he will not yield his lordship. He will not yield his sovereignty. He will not create patches where you may have life without him as lord. Let me, let me just quote Lewis, it's so great. Will you promise, she finally says, not to do anything to me if I come? I make no promise, says the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she'd come a step nearer. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. You see, Lewis makes a vital point. Jesus invites you to come, but only on his terms. And praise the Lord for that. For he's wise. He's the God of grace. He's the one of truth, but only on his terms. We must come to the fountain yielding ourselves. Again, taking him as Savior and as Lord. And Jesus does not promise not to do anything to you. He is, in terms of the earlier Narnia book, he is not a tame lion. And the petty priorities of our lives will then be in his hands. Jesus intends to revolutionize our lives and to turn upside down our priorities so that they match his. And yet how loving and how good he is. And he alone is the source of eternal life. Well, finally, Jill knelt and she drank from the lion's waters and Lewis says she found it was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. So it is with the Lord Jesus. He's the Lord of glory. He's the Lion of Judah. He's the fountain of true life. Now let me say, if you're a Christian, are you at least starting to experience this? We, we grow in these things. But you need to understand, this is Christianity. This is the Christian life. It's not rules. It's not outward conformities. It, it is life and, and a growing experience of life from the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I said the tragedy of Ponce de Leon was that if he had found the fountain of youth, it would not have satisfied him. I think a greater tragedy yet goes on today. Those who have found the fountain of life in Jesus but yet know little of the life he gives, of the blessings of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. 
I want to close with three reasons why many of us are struggling to, to experience what we've been reading about. The life and the satisfaction and, and the joy of Jesus Christ. And I say this because, frankly, it's important that we do so. You know, why is it that for all the evangelical movement in America today, all the churches, all the precept, all the great worship, why don't we have more traction on America? Well, one, is because we are not a holy people. People would not characterize the evangelical movement and say, these are people who have stepped out of the world and they, they live in the presence of God. That would not be said of us. And they would also say, these are not a people in whom this spiritual joy is evident. It is essential for the work of Christ in our generation, for your neighbor and friend who needs to know Jesus, that they would see in us, not because we're putting on a show, but because of the reality of this life and there are things keeping us from it. Let me just close with three of them. First, we are living too close to the world. And we have allowed ourselves to fill ourselves with worldly things. I wonder if you're like that. Are you still filling your soul with water that will leave you thirsty again. Now look, we live in the world. I'm not saying that you have to become a, an Amish person, get rid of your computer and all. But the question is, in what direction is our excitement directed? Where, is, where are our souls inclining, hoping to get excitement, life, satisfaction, refreshment? We need, as a group, to wean ourselves from earthly pleasures and treasures, and the kingdom of Christ needs to fill our hearts. We need, to be, we need the expulsive power, as Chalmers put it, of a new affection. We need to be living in the light of the glory of Jesus Christ, and then the allure of the world will fade away. We need to stop craving for worldly success. We need to stop drinking from worldly troughs. How many of us, Look, I don't know you, but I guarantee many of us here today need to reconsecrate our lives to Jesus Christ. We need to say, Lord, it's true. You are the life. And I, my, my thoughts are in different directions. My aspirations, you, you are a little compartment of my life and you want to be my life. If we will, we will find refreshing waters that will flow from him. Come to me and drink, not just once for all. That is true in its right sense but a daily living in the presence of Jesus. Now, secondly, even worse, many of us have stopped up this flow of the Holy Spirit because of besetting sins in which we are allied. We, we have contented ourselves with sin. We are not at war with sin. And sin is at war with us even as believers. Now, some of you are thinking, oh no, we're getting legalistic. My friends, it is not legalistic to say that we're to be reading and obeying God's word. And I, I read it recently. People say, you know, as a Christian, God will never be angry with you. That is not true, my friends. A loving father can be angry with his children and can withhold privileges. Thank God that he cares enough about what we're doing that, yes, I, look, my children will never get me not to love them, but they know that they can make me angry because I love them. And we can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can try to stop up the flow of living water. Now, thank God it doesn't work. It just keeps pumping it out. It keeps coming and it removes it. But God would have us to say, you know what, I I. I, I I'm going to put an end with my allegiance to sin. You know, in this life, we're always going to be sinners. If, if you're struggling with sin, it doesn't make you a non-Christian, but let's struggle with it. And let's say, why should I not live a life where, with the power of the Holy Spirit in my life? Maybe the Lord is saying to you and to me, well, let's think about some of the things that you're permitting in your life. This is not legalism. This is biblical Christianity. And we may come to him as sinners and say, Lord, give to me, let me drink. And the power that he gives is what we need in our fight from sin. And then thirdly, many Christians lack satisfaction because of a neglect of God's word. A neglect of God's word. You know, it's very significant that what Jesus says about himself as living water, a source of life like water, the Bible also says about itself. Isaiah 55, as the rain and snow come down from heaven, so is my word that goes forth from my mouth. It's like rain that falls that gives bread for the eater and, and seed for the sower. The rain falls and there is life. There are flowers blooming in the desert when there is life. Maybe your life is parched. Go to the word. Take up the gospel of John. Uh, say, Lord, speak to me. Give power through your word and life will come. One of my favorites, Psalm 1. 
Blessed is he who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. Let's stop walking in the counsel of the ungodly. And, and let's stop standing in the way of sinners. Let's stop sitting in the seat of scorners. That's not the way to, that's the, that's the way to have a life like, like chaff. But his delight is in the meditation of the word of God. And he or she will be like a tree planted by streams of living water. Jesus reigns through his word. He speaks to us through his word. And when we turn to the word of God, drinking from him, we will find a renewal of life. What a blessing the word of God is. Well, the woman heard Jesus' offer of life, its condition, its consequence, the change he desired. She didn't get it, and Jesus wasn't done with her. And the passage goes on, and he persists with her, and he works his grace. It is his gift, and he gives it. And before this passage is done, she understands, she sees him, she believes, she is changed. And she takes the gospel of life and forgiveness to the people of her village And in her, they see the living water that Jesus offers. May we likewise find in Jesus the gift of life. May we see him as a savior God has sent that we might partake of it. And then may we drink and may our generation, may New Mexico, may South Carolina begin to see in new ways a gospel people a gospel people, and the living waters will flow not only in us and through us, but out from us through our gospel witness, and others will find life as well. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the gift that you gave. Jesus is not offering us salvation in a way that's opposed to your will, Lord. You are the one who loves us. You are the Father who is gathering his children. And yet, Lord, it is true that, generally speaking, we are not living in the fulfillment and the life that Jesus gives. We are looking to gadgets. We are looking to lifestyle. Father, we thank you for useful things in the world. But help us to realize that our thirst will only be quenched in Jesus. Father, would you incline our hearts in your direction through him, Would you even use your word to draw us to the word and through the word, Lord, would we be people who more and more live in spiritual and soul satisfaction through union with Jesus Christ. Father, cause our generation to see not merely talk, but power, spiritual power and life flowing from your church through the word of God in the gospel of the Savior who offers us life. We pray in his name. Amen.